You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. chapter 4. We're going to read verses 10 through 15 together and then we're going to ask God's help on our study before we begin. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask now for your help for us as we study your word. Teach us those things that we do not know and make us the type of people that you want us to be. We pray that your word, as it is explained and as it is before us today, that you would grant us the understanding that is needed and the grace to apply this and to obey it. And we pray that we would walk away from here changed as a result of our time spent studying your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Philippians chapter 4, looking specifically at verse 11. Verse 11, we've kind of stopped and we're camping on that verse and really not even all of verse 11, but just that one word of verse 11, and that is the word content. Paul says, I have learned in whatever circumstance I am, to be content. So this now is the fourth message that we have had on one word, which is a new low for me in my preaching. And that's saying something. To spend four weeks on one word, I think has been necessary simply because I'm trying to, at least for my own sake, and I hope for your sake as well, to mind this idea of what biblical contentment is and illustrate it for you. So far we have defined contentment, I've described contentment, And last week we looked at that description of contentment. And last week I said a bad word during the message that I shouldn't have said, and I need to apologize for that and clarify it. And some of you are saying, did Jim swear last week? And maybe it was while I was dozing off. It wasn't a bad word in the sense of being vile or vulgar. It was a bad word in the sense of being a very poor choice of words. I mentioned last week the word happy. And I remember saying it, saying something to the end or to the effect that we... Contentment is being happy with what comes from the hand of God. And that created a whole bunch of confusion. And a couple of people asked questions, and I thought, well, that's good. In answering this question, then, that will help us sort of clarify what we're talking about with contentment. And the question really is this. Is happiness and contentment the same thing? 
If I'm content, do I know that I'm content when I am happy about the circumstance that I'm in? Or I'm happy with the situation? Or I am happy with where I'm at or what is happening to me? Do I have to be happy before I'm content? Is that how I know that I'm content when I'm happy? That's the question. The answer is that no, contentment and happiness are not the same thing. You can be sad. Listen, you can be racked with grief and be content. You can be very sad. Let's just say, and I hate to say this, but let me use a horrible illustration. Let's say you lose somebody that is close to you. A parent, a child, or a spouse. Can you be sad about that? Yeah, you can be very sad. You can be racked with grief over that. And experience in a very real way, and to a very real degree, all of the loss and all of the, um, the loneliness and the disappointment and everything that goes with that, you can be very sad about it. But at the same time, you can be content in that circumstance and content by taking it from the hand of God. If it's, if it's difficult for you to imagine that, let me answer that question by asking a somewhat similar question, but in a little bit of a different way. Is it possible to be happy and be discontent? Now, think carefully, think critically. Is it possible to be happy and still to be discontent? It is, isn't it? I might be happy with my raise. I might be happy with my job. I might be happy with my circumstances and my situation. But just because I'm happy doesn't do anything to change the contentedness or the discontentedness of my heart. I can be outwardly happy, gleeful, joyful even, and still not be content. Now, if you doubt that, let me ask you this question. Is it possible for an unbeliever to be happy? It certainly is, isn't it? Unbelievers are happy all day long, every day. Is it possible for an unbeliever to be content in the way we're describing in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11? No, because that's Christ's sufficiency, right? So it is possible to be happy and to be discontent. Just as it is possible to be sad, distressed, lonely, discouraged, disappointed, grieving or grief-filled, and at the same time be content in your circumstances, your situation. Because contentment is that Christ sufficiency. Remember the description that I gave you last week from Jeremiah Burroughs' book, A Rare Jewel, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment? He described it as this. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet frame or gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That was the description that I gave to you of what Christian contentment is. It's that inward, quiet frame of heart. Doesn't mean you can't be sad. You can be, you can be very sad and still be content in your sadness and with the situation. Because you accept it from the hand of God, you freely submit to it and you delight in it, and you receive it as what God has for you in that circumstance, but that doesn't take away the, the sadness. So basically you can be content about something and still be sad. You don't have to put on a Christian face, big smile, and, and say, I love the pain. I love the grief. This is great. I'm not, in, I'm not in pain at all. You don't have to do that. You don't have to gin up some false emotion of happiness in order to be content because that's not contentment. You can be very grieved, very sad, and still be content. Now, since I'm ask, answering questions, there was another one that was asked last week. You guys all have such good questions because I think you, you think through these things well. And the second question was, is contentment the same as laziness? Is contentment the same as laziness? Say, say your spouse says, you know what? I'm content with no firewood. I'm content to let the house fall into disrepair, the leaky roof. 
I'm content with that. The broken hot water heater, you just, honey, you just need to learn to be content. I'm just being content. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to be content in front of the TV, watching TV all day long and not doing anything, not going out to work, not earning any money, not taking care of you and the kids. Is that contentment? No, that's laziness. That's not the same thing as contentment. To the lazy, God does not say, well done, good and contented servant. He says, go to the ant, you sluggard, and learn from his ways. Uh, the Bible commends to us industry and hard work and initiative and labor and striving and seeking to improve our conditions. So laziness is not the same t- thing as contentment. But don't mix it up the other way, by the way, and say that just because somebody works hard, they must be discontent. Oh, he's out working hard all the time. That guy's a hard worker. He must be greedy and covetous and discontent because he works hard to make money to provide for his family and he stores it away into a savings account. He must be a discontented, greedy, covetous individual. No, that's not necessarily the case. It might be the case, but not necessarily the case. Because the Bible tells us that we ought to be industrious like that and to do that, but to do so in a contented way and not motivated by greed or covetousness. Uh, contentment is sometimes confused with laziness. It's sometimes confused with happiness. Contentment is sometimes also, or discontentment, I should say, is also sometimes confused with trying to improve your condition. Let me give you an illustration. Say your hot water heater breaks. Does contentment respond by saying, well, I'm just going to be content with cold showers for me and my family for the rest of my life? No. Contentment says, I will take this from the hand of God for whatever reason this has come into my life. I will receive this. I will submit to this. And now I will apply all diligence and industry and wisdom and all of my resources to improve my condition. And you can do that without any breach of contentment whatsoever. Paul received a gift from the hand of Epaphroditus that was sent from the church at Philippi that improved his circumstances and his conditions and met his needs and provided for very real needs. And he received that gratefully and thankfully and rejoicingly without any breach of contentment whatsoever. So, Now that we have answered sort of those three questions, I promised you last week that this week I would tell you how to be content. I would tell you how it is that we gain contentment. Because I've sort of alluded to this in the last couple of weeks, and we are going to get to that but in just a bit, because there's one other thing we have to address before we get to that. And I know that you're all on the edge of your seat, and I build suspense just like a B-movie, but we will get to the end of this, and and I will tell you how it is that we gain contentment. It's not through gaining something, it's through losing something. But before we understand how we gain contentment, because it's very mysterious, we also have to understand a little bit about the mysterious nature of contentment itself. Contentment is one of those Christian virtues that is seemingly paradoxical. It's seemingly contradictory to itself. And many of the virtues and many of the truths of Christianity are just that. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you have to be not the ruler of all, but the servant of all. If you want to gain your life, Jesus said, you have to lose it. We attain glory through suffering. We are strong when we are at our weakest. God confounds the wisdom of the world through the foolish things of the world. All of these are paradoxes. They're sort of enigmas. Mysteries of the kingdom, as it were. And contentment is one of those. And let me show you two ways that contentment is very mysterious. Because you've got to understand exactly the mystery of what we're talking about before you're going to really be able to appreciate how you gain contentment. Here's the mystery of it. You can be content... And you can be aware of your affliction. That's how the Puritans would have said it. And by aware, they mean this. You can fully realize all of the sadness, all of the grief, and all of the pain of an affliction or of suffering or of your circumstances. And you can be aware of that. You can understand it. You don't have to deny reality to be content. You can be aware of all of the afflictions that you're under. And still at the same time be content. 
And in being aware of your circumstances and your situation and your afflictions, you can, listen, this is mysterious, you can be content while at the same time you are praying for and striving for and asking the Lord for and trusting for and hoping for and working for deliverance from your circumstances. So you can be endeavoring to pray for and deliver yourself from out from under an affliction while at the same time being content with your affliction. Isn't that mysterious? It is. The carnal mind, the carnal heart has no understanding of this whatsoever. That I can be content with a physical affliction, a mental affliction, a spiritual affliction, while at the same time praying for and striving for relief from that affliction. I can be contented with both of them. That's mysterious. Secondly, and this I think is very profound, what I'm about to share with you, and I can say that it's profound because I didn't come up with this or observe this. I'm learning this myself, and I borrow this from Burroughs. And I say it's profound because this got me thinking. I spent several days just mulling this over. Burroughs says, it may be said of somebody, and this is the second mystery of contentment, it may be said of somebody, if he is contented in a Christian way, that he is at the same time, listen, the most contented man in the world, and the most unsatisfied man in the world. The most contented man in the world and the most unsatisfied man in the world. Now, how can you be the most contented person and the most unsatisfied person at the same time? Let me explain it. What is biblical contentment? We've said all along, it is a Christ sufficiency. It is an inward frame of the heart that finds sufficiency for all of its longings, all of its desires, and all of its fulfillment In one person, in one place, alone. And that's in Christ. So if Christ is my sufficiency, and if He is the fulfillment of all my longings and my desires and my anticipations, and all of my heart's yearnings, if He is sufficient for me, then at the same time I can be content and be, listen, the most unsatisfied person in all of the world. That is to say that you can take a contented man, and you can say to him, I will take Christ from you and I will give you All of this world, all of the kingdoms, all of the riches, all of the gold, all of the trappings, all of the attractions, all of the entertainments, all of the pleasures that your heart could possibly desire, I will give all of that to you. I will multiply it times 10,000. And he will still be unsatisfied. Why? Because he doesn't have Christ. And yet you can say to a contented man, you have Christ and a piece of bread, and he'll say, I'm content. That is a mystery. How you can be content with Christ and a piece of bread, and yet to take Christ away and you could not fill that void with 10,000 times 10,000 worlds and all that it brings. Now take a pagan man, take a carnal man, a fleshly man, and offer him the kingdoms of the world and he'll be satisfied. Offer him treasure and money, women and wealth, he'll be satisfied. Offer him pleasure and entertainment and and all of the things that the world has to offer, offer him the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and the the lust of the flesh, and he'll be satisfied with those things. But a Christian can never be satisfied with any of those things. You can offer a Christian 10,000 worlds and he will not be satisfied, but give him Christ and affliction and he's content. Give him Christ and suffering and he's content. Why? Because contentment is Christ's sufficiency. So a contented man can be both the most contented individual and yet the most unsatisfied individual. And the most, listen, the most miserable Christian is the Christian who has this heart's capacity to find its sufficiency in Christ, 
but instead tries to fill that with everything that cannot fill it. Tries to fill it with ease or comfort or things or security or anything else in this world. And instead doesn't realize that I can have all of that found and all of that supplied in Christ. The most miserable Christian is the person who cannot be satisfied in anything other than Christ. And rather than getting that satisfaction and fulfillment in Christ, they try to find it in some other means or some other way. That's the mystery of contentment. Do you realize that all of the afflictions of your life are woven into your life for the purpose of weaning you off of the things of this world? That's one of the reasons for affliction. It's one of the reasons for suffering. It's one of the many things that God does through sufferings. All of my trials, my temptations, my persecutions, my afflictions, my sufferings, all of the evil things that come into my life or the ill things that come upon us and besiege us, all of those things, listen, as well as the blessings, are all woven into our life for the purpose that Christ would wean us off of this tendency that we have to find our sufficiency and our fulfillment in something other than Him. And that's what we do. We want to be supplied. We want to have sufficiency. We want to be satisfied. We want to be content. And so what we do is we look at all of the things of the world and we take all of our blessings and all of the attractions that come to us and we try and find our sufficiency and our satisfaction in those things. And one of the things that suffering does is it makes us lose our taste, our hunger and our thirst for the things of this world. And listen, even the blessings, even the blessings ring hollow because they're mere shadows of what is to come. So even the blessings that we enjoy, they're great. They're good. We love them. We enjoy them. We're to be in this world and to enjoy this world and all of God's creation. But at the same time, all of the blessings, they have a hollow ring to them because we know that they can't satisfy. And so we look past the blessings to the one who has given the blessings, and that is to Christ Himself. And He brings affliction and He brings suffering and He brings tribulation and trials and temptation and all of that to wean us off of all of the temporary things that cannot satisfy so that we could find our sufficiency in Christ and be content. That's what affliction does. Take somebody who has gone through suffering and has received the suffering with the grace of God that comes with it. And they will not trade that for anything in the world. Now, you may have endured suffering but you've received no grace in the midst of it because you're not handling it right or you're not submitted to God in the right way, you'd probably trade your suffering for anything. But take somebody who has really suffered and with that suffering has received all of the blessing that comes with it and they will not trade that for anything because they understand that in the midst of that suffering and affliction, they're content with it. Not that they're happy. Not that they don't want relief. But they are content with it. So that brings us to the question then of how is it that I gain contentment or receive contentment? It is something that the Lord wants to teach us. Paul says, I have learned in whatever circumstance I am to be content. So this is the object lesson. This is the lesson that God wants to teach us. He wants to teach us contentment. Now let me say at the beginning, if I've oversold how to get contentment, it's going to be more simple than you might think. and You might even be a little bit disappointed. So if I've oversold it, I'm sorry. It really is a simple thing, but at the same time, I want you to understand, I have under no illusions that is leaving here today, we're all going to be content. Oh, Jim explained it. We got it. We waited four weeks for that. He finally told us how to be content, and I was content before I left the gym today. No, you're not. If Paul took all of his life to learn contentment, it's going to take you all of your life to learn contentment. This, I hope, will be just something that will 
point us all in that direction and help us to see it for what it is and crystallize things in our minds and help us a great deal toward gaining contentment. That's the goal. So how is it that I gain contentment? Naturally thinking, in our natural minds, and our natural hearts, we think that contentment is gained through gaining something else. The natural man says, if I could only have this, I would be content. Whatever it might be. Possessions, power, prestige, recognition, reputation, a family, a house, car, security, whatever it is. If I could only have this, if I could only bring my possessions up to this level, or this thing up to this level, I could fill it up to here, I would be content. That's how the natural man thinks. That is not how biblical contentment is attained. Biblical contentment is not attained by gaining anything, but by losing something. Now you could go through the book of Ecclesiastes and you could just ask Solomon, is it possible to fill up the measure and have all of your desires met and to be content? And Solomon would tell you in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I built houses, I built gardens, I built parks, I acquired slaves, I acquired the pleasures of women, wine, food, song, parties, an entire empire, all of the gold, all of the silver, all of the precious jewels and precious wood and precious stones that money could buy. He had a kingdom that would blow, boggle our minds. And yet at the end of it all, he says, didn't satisfy me. It's it's vain. It's fleeting. There's no profit to it. It's all vanity and striving after wind. And he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, He who loves money will never be satisfied with money. And he who loves abundance will never be satisfied with its increase. So you can't gain biblical contentment by gaining something else. You have to go at it through a back door, as it were. You have to lose something. Now listen, I'm not talking about any of your possessions. I'm not asking you to write a check out to the church before you leave here. I'm not suggesting that that's how you gain contentment. I'm not saying you have to sell anything. You don't have to give up any possession that you have. But there is something that you have to lose. A, a, a contentment is gained not by adding something to what we have, by, but by subtracting from our desires. It is not gained by adding to what we have. Contentment is arrived at by subtracting from our desires. You and I have to have lower desires. You see, there's two ways to become content. In a discontented person, there is a... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? There is a disconnect between the level of their desires and the level of their circumstances. Their circumstances are here and their desires are up here. There's two ways of gaining contentment. One is to take your circumstances and raise them up so that they match your desires. The other is to take your desires and lower them down to the level of your circumstances. Jeremiah Burroughs in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, says, If the heart of a man is fashioned to his circumstances, he may have as much contentment as if his circumstances were fashioned to his heart. Some men have a mighty large heart, but they have straightened circumstances and they can never have contentment when their hearts are big and their circumstances are little. But though a man cannot bring his circumstances to be as great as his heart, yet he can bring his heart to be as little as his circumstances to make them even, and that is the way to contentment. So a contentment is not acquired by adding to what I have. A contentment is arrived at by subtracting from my desires. I simply lose some of my desires. Spurgeon said the same thing in a much cuter, Spurgeon-esque type fashion. Spurgeon said, small shoes are apt to pinch. 
but not if you have a small foot. Right? Small shoes are apt to pinch, but not if you have a small foot. He went on to say, if we have little means, it will be well to have little desires. Poverty is no shame, but discontentment with poverty is. He said, Jim, that's really not fair. That's sort of a bait and switch. You're telling me that I have to not desire anything and have anything. I can't have all that my heart desires. I'm actually telling you the exact opposite. I'm telling you you can have all that your heart desires. I want you to imagine that we were to place an ad in the Daily Bee for a sermon title that says, How to Get from God All That Your Heart Desires. Now, provided that the Daily Bee didn't mess up the wording of the advertisement and it went out without any corrections or retractions or reprints or anything like that, Provided they got all of that right, friends, I bet we could sell out the pan and we could sell out any venue in town. People would come to hear a message, how I can get from God everything my heart wants. How do I know that they would, we would sell that out? Because people fill churches all over this country to hear that very same message. How can I get from God all that my heart desires? And listen, I'm telling you, desire only what you have and you will have all that you desire. That's not a semantics game. That's contentment. Desire only what you have, and you will have all that your heart desires. I've said all along, contentment's a frame of the heart. It's not measured by your possessions. You can be a millionaire sitting here this morning. You can still be content. You may live in a hovel with a piece of bread. You can still be content. It has absolutely nothing to do with your circumstances. It has absolutely nothing to do with the level of your position or your provision. It has nothing to do with the size of your bank account, the size of your house, or the number of cars that you have, or any worldly possessions. Contentment is a frame of heart. Contentment is a matter of taking my heart and saying, I desire all of these things, but I will whittle those things away, and I will make my heart desire only that which I have. And when I desire only that which I have, I'm content because I have all that my heart desires. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Listen, you've got two choices. You can either try to control all of your circumstances and make your circumstances match your desires, or you can control your lusts and control your desires and control your wants so that they match your circumstances. One of those two is, those are the only two options. You either will control your circumstances or you control your heart. As Christians, we have the ability and the responsibility to control our hearts. And to say, yes, though I may want this, I don't have this. And so I will only want those things that I have, and then I shall have all that I want. And I will be content with that. And I will be happy with that. That is biblical contentment. Spurgeon applied it to material possessions, and he said this, possibly you're dissatisfied because you cannot bring the contents of your pocket up to the height of your wishes. But if you bring your wishes down to the level of the contents of your pocket, you'll be satisfied with what you now have. You say, but Jim, that's really difficult to control all of my desires and my wants and my lusts and my passions. It's really difficult to do that. It is a whole lot easier to do that than it is to try and control your circumstances, which you cannot control. Because you will find yourself bumping up against circumstances that you cannot control. They don't rest in your control. You can't do anything to change them. And you may be content in a worldly way and have all the possessions that your heart desires. And yet when the winds of change come blowing your way and all of that is stripped from you and your house burns down or you lose your business or you lose your car or you lose a child or you lose a spouse, then the discontentment of your heart will come out. 
But if you are able to say, even though I cannot change and alter and control my circumstances, I can control the desires of my heart. And I will fashion my heart to meet my circumstances so that in my circumstances I have everything that my heart desires and then I can be content. So how do you gain contentment? By changing your circumstances? No. By adding to your wealth? No. By adding to any of your material possessions? No. None of that. You're content when you change your heart so that your heart matches your circumstances. Listen, that is why Paul could say, I have learned to be content in whatever condition I am. That is the secret of contentment. Being content in every circumstance is a matter of being in every circumstance and saying, this circumstance is for me the will of God, and I want His will to be my will, and so I will not desire anything except that which God brings to me, and that which God brings to me in desiring it, I have it, and I can be content with that. Because we go back to my view, your view of God. If we view God as being wise and sovereign and providential and good, and we submit to that fatherly, wise disposal in every circumstance, then all that means is that I take my heart and I frame it in order to suit my circumstances and suit what God brings to me, and I can be content no matter what the circumstances are. You say, is that all that it is? We're going to flesh it out in verses 12, 13, and 14 as we work our way through that, but that is the basis of what it is. It is fashioning my heart so that I can say, in poverty or in extravagance, I can be content with either one. Why? Because my heart is fit to either the poverty or the circumstance. Frederick Burroughs says this, The way to be rich is not by increasing wealth, but by diminishing our desires. You want to be rich? You don't need to increase your wealth. You just need to diminish your desires. One of those is much easier than the other. Which one do you think it is? It is easier to diminish my desires than it is to increase my wealth, even in this country. Certainly that man or woman is rich who have their desires satisfied. Now a contented man has his desires satisfied and God satisfies them. That is, all considered, he is satisfied that his circumstances are for the present the best circumstances. And so he comes to contentment not by way of addition, but by subtraction. was Jeremiah Burroughs. I told you the Puritans are fun to read. Did you catch all that? Like four sentences all rolled into one. He comes to contentment not by way of addition, but by subtraction. How is that? Because he is satisfied that his current circumstances, whatever they are, are his best circumstances for the present. Wherever I am, I have to come to the conclusion, whatever is going on with me, wherever I am, that is for my best. And if it were not for my best, God would not bring it into my life. I was talking with uh, somebody this last week who, who has themselves read that book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And she said to me, I read that. I highlighted it so much. I went through it so much. The binding is actually broken, falling apart. The pages were falling out of it. And I had to get another one. She said, that book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, and the book Trusting God by Jerry Bridges were the two most fundamental, foundational, life-changing books I ever read, other than the Bible. Those two books, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment and Trusting God. And they dovetail together. And you know why they dovetail together? Because I am content when I trust God in every circumstance. And that is contentment. So that His will becomes my will and I will what He wills. And how do I know what He wills? Where am I right now? That is His will for me. And those are the best circumstances for me at this time. And in order to be discontent, and I could spend a whole sermon actually talking about the evil of murmuring and discontent, which I'm not going to do that. But listen... 
the evil of discontentment is that in order to be discontent, I have to place a judgment upon my circumstances that says my circumstances are not the best for me at this time. That's where discontentment begins. Looking at whatever is unfolding around me in my life and coming to the conclusion, making the judgment, this is not for my best. If I were God, I would rule the universe better. I would do a better job of disposing of me. I would do a better job of arranging my circumstances for my good. This is not for my good. That's what discontentment says. This is not the best circumstance or situation that I could be in at this time. And contentment says, no, God is good and He is sovereign and He is wise. And whatever I'm at right now, that is the best thing for me right now. For whatever purpose it is, whatever He's working out, whatever He's doing, where I am at right now is the best place for me right now. And I will take it from His hand and I will submit to that and accept it. And I will be satisfied with it. And I will make sure that the desires of my heart match my circumstances. And that way I have learned in every situation to be content. Frederick Faber, poet and a hymn writer, he wrote a poem. I think it became a hymn. It was called The Will of God. And the last stanza says this, Ill that He blesses is our good, and unblessed good is ill. Did you catch that? Ill that God blesses is our good, and unblessed good is our ill. The problem is that most Christians would rather take what they perceive to be good absent the blessing of God, than what they perceive to be ill with His blessing. And Faber says, ill that God blesses for us becomes our good, and any good that comes to us without God's blessing is our ill. And the last part of that stanza says, and all is right that seems most wrong if it is His sweet will. That's the truth. If you have contentment, a contented individual has a life without being vexed, a life without anxiety, a life in which they can rejoice in any circumstance and situation, a life in which their heart is full, they have everything they could want, everything that they do want. That's a contented person. A contented person has all that his heart desires. It is to have a full heart to be content. It is to have every need and every desire that you have met. It is to find sufficiency in Christ. It is to stop chasing the never-ending end of the rainbow, which always moves when you're trying to find that thing that will make you content. And it is instead to look to the one person who can content us, who can suffice for us, who can satisfy us, and that is Christ. That is the blessing of contentment. We call it a jewel, not just because it's rare, but because it is so precious. Oh, if we could just lose our hunger for things that cannot satisfy us. If we could just lose that and instead find sufficiency in Christ, then we would come to realize that all of the afflictions and all of the blessings that come my way are aimed at weaning me off of this world and fixing my heart on Christ where I can find sufficiency. Is that possible? Paul says I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. It is possible. God does that for our good and for His glory. And listen to me, those two things are one and the same. God has so united His glory with your good, if you are a believer, that the most glorifying thing for God is the thing that is most good for you. And the thing that is most good for you glorifies Him the most. So if God is committed to glorifying Himself to the ultimate degree, and everything rests under His providential and sovereign control, and everything is in His hands, 
and He is infinite in goodness and kindness and grace, then everything that comes into my life, listen, it is for my ultimate good and it is the best thing for me. It is the best thing for you. And it will most glorify God. What is the most good for me is for the most glory for God and vice versa. They are inseparably linked. They are tied to each other. So in all of my circumstances, how am I content? By gaining something? By losing something. I lose all of the hungers and all of the desires that distract me away from Christ. And we'll find out more about what that's like next week. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank You that You have purposed to glorify Yourself by showing Your goodness to us and by pursuing the best and highest good for all Your people. We thank You that we can trust You. We know that it is easier to say than to do sometimes. But God, we desire to lose all of the attraction that we have for things that cannot satisfy. And we do pray that through all of the afflictions that come our way, the circumstances, the difficulties, the trials, and the blessings that they would all serve to direct our heart and our focus toward Christ. Give us this grace of contentment. We pray that You would continue to teach this to us in order that we might be adorned by this grace and that it might characterize the lives of Your people. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake and for His glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.